0: Today on Pilots Discretion, our guest is pilot and writer Jeb Burnside. He tells us what risk management really means, how to make better weather decisions, and what his most controversial aviation opinion is. Pilots Discretion starts right now. Welcome, Pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. If you like Pilot's Discretion, please follow us in your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. And remember you can catch up on every previous episode by visiting sporties.com slash podcast. Today I am joined by Jeb Burnside, a longtime aviation writer and editor whose work has appeared in numerous publications over the years. He is currently editor in chief at Aviation Safety Magazine and co-host and co-founder of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. He has been an active pilot for nearly 50 years And owns a Beechcraft Debonair. Jeb, welcome to Pilots' Discretion.
1: Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: I love reading Aviation Safety Magazine because it has this very practical focus on what really matters, not just what the latest buzzword is. So, given your long experience in that world, I'm interested in what you think the most overlooked threat is for GA pilots. We talk a lot about midairs, weather, engine failures. Are those the kind of things we should worry about, or is there something else that should get more attention?
1: One of those things is certainly something to worry about. Uh, I don't think it's mid-airs. I think it's weather. Um, weather, probably by design, but uh, certainly uh, it served me over the years. I had some mentors early on when I was uh, doing Abinicio training, and they very strongly and very keenly uh, warned me about weather, warned me about, uh, hey, it might not look that bad, but... Go poke your nose in that, and it's you're going to be out of control. You're going to have a bumpy ride. You're going to have lightning. You're going to have all this. And uh, they in, uh, instilled in me a, a strong desire to avoid poor weather. That extends you know, to, to low instrument conditions too.
0: You've written a lot of great things over the years in aviation safety about weather. I liked this line in a recent article. You said, quote, thunderstorm avoidance begins at home by picking your timing and route. I and agree. you know a lot yeah, of a lot right. of effort gets focused on in flight and data link weather and deviation, and that's obviously very very important. But tell me more about that—the power of setting your your timing and your route when it comes to weather mm-hmm. avoidance.
1: Well, it's it's not that it's not rocket science, but it, it does require some planning. And uh, let's just take the scenario of a um, several hour one way cross country in the airplane of your choice, and you know that you have a schedule to keep. You have let's say, a, a business presentation that afternoon in a distant city. Um, normally, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that promoters of general aviation always like to tout is that we can get up and go anytime we want, and we can, we can squeeze things in, we can uh, 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 cut things close as far as time is concerned, but that may not be the best solution. Um, let's say there's a cold front. You have to be in Wichita, Kansas tomorrow morning uh, uh, or tomorrow noon, and uh, but there's a cold front coming in from Colorado. Um, maybe the best thing to do would be to go the day before. Get in, uh, get a good night's sleep, um, get a good breakfast, a good lunch, and then stroll into your, your uh, business meeting that afternoon, fully rested, not hectic. Uh, and that's just the business side of it. Do you really want to deal with a cold front just to struggle to get through to your destination? while you're looking at your watch, um, and thinking, I'm going to be late for this presentation. None of that is, is bodes well for the outcome of the flight.
0: Yeah. I think you make a great point here that it's not always the simple go or no go. A lot of times it's go earlier, go later, Mm -hmm. go a different route, go a different altitude. And we certainly have the tools today to run some of those scenarios a lot better than we did even 10 or 15 years ago.
1: I agree completely. It's amazing what we can do with, uh, uh, an off-the-shelf iPad and some software.
0: So let's look at the other side of that, because I hear from a fair number of pilots that they suffer from a kind of weather anxiety, where they'll start worrying about the, re- the weather a week before their trip, and then if they're on maybe a four-day trip, they'll spend most of their trip worrying about their return flight weather. So how do you balance that awareness of weather and, and decision-making about when and where to go while also not letting it completely dominate everything. How, any tips for managing that anxiety?
1: Yes and no. I, I think, first of all, that anxiety is is well-deserved, well-founded. Um, I'll maybe come back to that in a moment. But um, keep an eye on things. You, I think you have to. I think you have to keep an eye on the macro weather situation. I think you have to understand what the conditions are going to be when you're ready to leave your... your um, um, your vacation spot. Uh, that's part of airmanship. That's part of, uh, good judgment. It's part of the overall picture of risk management when you're flying a personal airplane.
0: Yeah. One of my few rules on this is be clear about when you can actually make a decision. And so a great example to me mm-hmm. is it's seven 30, I've got a beer in my hand. There's no chance I'm going to go fly home right now. So there's no point in looking at the weather then it can probably wait till, uh, the next morning, but Make sure you have looked at it maybe before you make that decision to sit down uh-huh. at dinner and at least be intentional about when you can actually make a change to plans.
1: Right. The, you know, the prog chart is, your, your, is one of your best friends. Um, the, um, the MOS uh, forecast, uh, terminal forecast, I would call it, uh, is another great friend. It's a great tool. It, it, it's not specific that you have to take that with a grain of salt when compared to the, uh, to the TAF, but um, it is a good guideline. And, it, and in my experience, it's not that far off the mark. So you have the tools to to get a better picture, to understand what that weather going to look like when you're ready to go.
0: Let's talk more broadly about risk management, which good. weather decision making probably falls under that. And this is a concept I believe in strongly. I think, in fact, once you have a few hundred hours, most of what being a pilot is, is risk management. But I also feel like the training industry has sort of gone overboard and made this whole subject far too complicated with all these matrices and mnemonics and everything. So uh-huh. what does risk management mean to you? How would you put that in practical terms?
1: That's a good question. And um, let me let me back up to something you just did say um, about uh, the tables and the charts and the and mnemonics and uh, so many other uh, training aids that the FAA has come out with. I was going for a check ride several years ago, and and uh, walked into the pilot loungers There's an instructor and a student um, going at it. And the instructor, I'm sorry, the student is is just in, almost in disbelief at some of the things the controller or the instructor is telling him. And he turns to me and says, "Do you understand any of this risk management stuff?" And he didn't know me from Adam. And I <laughs> kind of chuckled and said, "Well, actually, yeah, I sort of kind of sort of do," but. Um, um, it all comes down to, in my mind, uh, and, and weather is just one facet, I'll, I'll be in a major facet, it's just one facet of uh, risk management. One of the catchphrases I like to use goes something along the way of, a well-trained pilot flying a well-maintained airplane with an instrument rating and with fuel in the tanks is the least possible risk in private aviation. And... I, you know, I, I come back to that. There are so many different things that can trip us up, uh, fuel being one of them, fuel being another major one, I should say, uh, our training, the, the, the equipment we carry aboard the airplane. All of these factors um, can be used, can be misused when it comes to risk management. Uh, fuel is a big consideration, as I mentioned. You can use your fuel. Dude, you have an airplane. You can go around this bad weather. Um, You can do it at a much faster rate than the weather is moving. Uh, You have to pick and choose which direction you want to go, which direction you want to point the airplane. But you're not going to get very far if you don't have some gas in the tanks. Um, So my other saying is you're running out of gas the minute you start the engine Hmm. because you have a finite amount and it's going to take you X to get there. You need to have Y on board. Hopefully, Y is is more than is X. Than X. So, uh, that's one of the things all of us can do to minimize risk. I, just as an aside, I, I cannot count the number of, of accident reports I come across where fuel is an issue. It's It's either fuel exhaustion or fuel starvation where someone forgot to switch the tank or Maybe they switched the tank too late. There's some air in the lines. Pick, pick a reason. Um, there's fuel there, but it's not getting to the engine. Or there's simply no fuel at all. It's been exhausted.
0: Yeah, that's to me an example where risk management is a mindset or a way of thinking. It's not necessarily a formula or a table mm-hmm. because what mm-hmm. you're really trying to do is be realistic. Identify that there are risks out there and be intentional about managing them but it's not just a matter of completing some checklist that, Oh, I did my flight planning. I've got this much fuel on board. To me, risk management means a mindset that that may change in route because maybe the headwinds are different or maybe the route changed exactly. or maybe there was weather. And just because you checked the box beforehand, uh, before you took off does not mean that you're, you're done with your risk management. It's sort of an always thing. It's not just a, a discrete process you complete as a part of pre-flight.
1: That's exactly right. I, uh... Uh, my airplane uh, has tip tanks, uh, another 30 or so gallons of gas. And one of the trips I used to make a lot, and one of the reasons I got the tip tanks, is with the factory fuel, uh, I could make my, my normal destination, my normal trip length just fine, uh, have plenty of reserves. Adding the tip tanks meant I could fly from my home airport to that destination, find it unusable, turn around and go back to my original uh, uh, departing point. And that is money in the bank as far as I'm concerned.
0: Let's talk about transition training because I think this is an increasingly important topic as airplanes get different. You mentioned tip tanks as an example. A lot of times it can be avionics or just stepping up into a higher performance airplane, moving from a 172 to a Bonanza, Mm -hmm. Cherokee to a Cirrus. What do you think the current state of transition training is? This is not something governed by the FAA typically. It's more of Mm. an insurance requirement or just a personal preference. Sure. Uh, sure. How do we do on Uh, those transitions?
1: Well, let me point out, first of all, that you're absolutely correct that the step up transition training is a critical factor. But I would also add that the step down Mm. transition training is a factor. Say you're moving from, uh, to pick an example, a Bonanza to an LSA. for whatever reasons there may be. The um, Bonanza is much more powerful. It's it's much more heavily loaded. Uh, it has many more uh, forgiving characteristics, perhaps, than a typical LSA. And by that, I mean it's lightweight. It makes it much more subject to atmospheric conditions, crosswinds, um, wake turbulence, things of these kinds. Um, so I think there's a need for to transition upward as well as downward uh that said i think probably the the most difficult aspect of transitioning upward is getting say going from a steam panel to a glass panel or vice versa um i recently flew a skyhawk uh it was not a g1000 but it did have a g5 in it and i wasn't familiar with the g5 and found it difficult to, to use. I actually started, there was a backup AI on the airplane and I actually started referring to it because it was something I was accustomed to. This was for a BFR, so it didn't really matter. Um, but it was disconcerting to me to see um, how much difficulty I was having transitioning to the glass instrument. Um, when we move from a, less powerful airplane to a more powerful airplane. And and one example that um, uh, I like to use is going from a Bonanza to a Baron. Um, The systems on the Baron are the same as a Bonanza, uh, basically, with the exception of, of course, that extra engine. Um, It flies, the airplane flies basically the same. It lands basically the same. It's, It's just as predictable as the Bonanza is. But that, Sometimes doubling of horsepower, uh, means uh, a lot of different things to 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 the pilot. One of them is you have to think further ahead of the airplane. Um, that's just a gimme when you're going from a sl- relatively slow airplane to a faster one. Um, at the same time, that Baron is heavier, so if you try to fly it, fly a pattern with the same. Uh, power settings—you uh, may turn around the final and find yourself coming up too low. Um, so these kinds of things, the weight of the aircraft, its power loading, uh, the instruments, the the electronics it has aboard—all of these are factors. Um, when it comes down to whether there should be greater regulation, I would I would say maybe there should be greater awareness of these differences. And uh, better curricula designed to teach those differences and and help resolve them at least in the mind of the pilot.
0: Yeah, the avionics piece is key there. I think a lot of uh-huh. a lot of airplanes these days are sort of uh, multi generational avionics systems. It's not all a, a <laughs> yeah, clean up. Mine is an example <laughs> of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you might have a you might have a brand new GTN 750XI Navigator, but then a slightly older uh, attitude indicator, and then a fully vintage, uh, six pack. And I I think that just adds some of the challenge that it's not as simple as going sometimes from straight steam gauges to straight G1000, for example. Uh, and there's a lack of experience among instructors with some of that, just partly because it's impossible to have experience on all the variety of avionics, what are some, uh, well, some options for, for a person in that situation? I mean, there's a lot of information out there now. Some of the mm-hmm. manufacturers like Garmin have gotten pretty serious about doing some training courses. What should a transitioning pilot do uh, to show up a little less overwhelmed for that first transition flight? Um,
1: there's a, a great answer is to use a, uh, a desktop simulator. Um, there are a number of packages out there. Let's, let's take the G1000 or the GTN series, for example. Garmin has simulators free for the download for these, for these uh, avionics. Other manufacturers have similar uh, uh, outreach, similar training capabilities. Um, it's not so much a matter of being able to read the screen. It's a matter of bringing up on the screen what it is you want. And that means button pushing. That means twisting knobs. That means knowing what's available and how to find it through all the menus. It's a lot better to do that sitting in your home office chair than it is a chair that's moving at 120 to
0: 160 knots. I think there's also great... So that's that. Yeah. Great value out there in, in finding other pilots with the experience, even if they're not CFIs. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can learn a lot mm-hmm. just from uh, somebody else. Maybe the avionics shop can put you in touch with the last person that did that upgrade.
1: Well, and that's exactly right. Um, the um, when, when you talk to your instructor or a- any instructor about this kind of transition, uh, you need to figure out how much experience he or she has with the airplane you're transitioning to. You need to know... Um, what, e- what equipment it carries. You need to know the experience that the s- instructor has with that equipment. I'm aware of several instructors who make a very good living of flying right seat with people who have just spent a bundle of money on their panels. And now they're going to spend another 25 flight hours in the airplane learning how to use all this magic. And that, whether it's 25 hours or, or 50 hours or, or 10 hours, it certainly should be double-digit value because trying for proficiency here, not just day far pattern work. Um, and someone with the intimate knowledge of how all this stuff works is literally going to be money in the bank. It's going to save
0: you over time. Yeah, in addition to being safer, I think there's also great value in actually getting all the value out of the avionics you install. I sometimes see people spend a bundle of money on a panel and then, they don't use 80% of the features because they never really learned how to do it, which seems like a tragedy to me.
1: Yeah, I, I remember the days when Loran, and this is we'll probably get into the second part of our conversation here, but when Loran uh, was a big deal and people were just taking off, punching in direct and not bothering with flight plans, coupling the autopilot if they were able. And uh, um, droning into a mountain about forty miles away, um, That dumb, and happy, as they say. Um, so you've got that thing, got that kind of thing, going on. But more important, um, you can you can see that in GPS and autopilots and all that kind of thing today, also. But more important, there are all, these avionics today have so much more capability than we had when I was g- growing up, and literally and figuratively and when i was getting my instrument rating for example um you know raise your hand if you've ever flown a, a, an adf approach an ndb approach i should say uh, i've never flown one in anger but i've flown a lot of them in practice and nowadays you can't even find one um so there's there's that kind of experience um try to find a cfi today who's flown an NDB approach because these, there aren't any, very few anymore anyway. And, um, the aircraft aren't equipped with ADFs.
0: One final safety topic is engine failures. I wanted to get your opinion on, uh, especially engine failure after takeoff. This seems to be the eternal barstool debate about when is it okay to turn back? There was a great article in Aviation Safety Magazine in the last couple of years talking about how it's not black and white here. There, In your uh, article, you talk about the concept of zones, where it's there's mm-hmm. sort of a red zone, a yellow zone, a green zone. Tell us about that, because I thought that was a really helpful way to think about this decision.
1: Yeah, it is a very helpful way. And I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Tom Turner, one of my regular contributors, who's also uh, um, an entrepreneurial flight instructor in his own right, as well as executive director of the American Bonanza Society. Uh, So came up with that that chart, and I have to give him credit. Basically, it's as you described. There's a a red zone, maybe a blue zone, or or I should say a a red zone, a yellow zone, a green zone, maybe a blue zone to to go after that. And it's all based on uh, distance from the runway you're departing and altitude. And let's say the first 400 feet, um, if the engine quits, you don't have the altitude. You don't have the energy. You don't have the time to start worrying too much about, uh, turning around to the airport, turning around to the runway, or even maybe taking a 45 degree left or right turn. Uh, you probably should be just thinking about landing straight ahead. You need to secure the airplane. Uh, you need to make sure all the seats are, are seat belts, I should say, are fastened and, uh, fly the airplane until it comes to a stop. When you're in that next zone, let's say between 400 and and 800 feet, um, you can take that 45 degree turn left or right, and line up with the the best piece of real estate that you can see. Um, From say 800 to 1200, um, you can in fact make a 90. I'm sorry, make a 180 degree turn, uh, and Maybe get most of the way back to the airport. But in most of the airplanes that are extremely active these days, which are the heavier and, and faster ones, um, you're going to need more altitude than 1,200 feet to make the impossible turn and get back to the runway you just departed or get back to the airport environment itself. Uh, it, there are exceptions. There's, there's wind considerations. There's uh, rate of climb considerations. Um, speed, all of these considerations that, that factor into this. There is no clear cut answer, except if this is something that you're extremely concerned about, you need to go out and practice, preferably with an instructor. And you need to go out and, and establish some metrics and just say, all right, let's, let's take off, let's climb to 400 feet and see where we are. And maybe even if at a, at a quiet airport, try to turn back or try to tr- do a 45 degree turn. Um, the objective here is is not to touch down, but to figure out what energy you have left, uh, all of which, of course, is dependent on where all this happens, um, how quickly you get the nose down and, and, and attain your, your best glide speed, um, and how well you fly the airplane. You can, you can do all this with your feet on the floor, and you're still not going to make it. You do it with, with adequate rudder and, and proper coordination of all the controls, Chances are you might make it, depends. And that's the punchline. It all depends.
0: Jeb, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask you about your lobbying days. Sure. An emergency is no time for an instruction manual. That's why the pilots at Sporties designed the easy-to-use PJ-2 Plus COM radio, the only portable with built-in aviation headset jacks. In an emergency, you can plug right in and stay focused on flying. No adapters and no confusing menus. The PJ2 Plus also includes a 3.5mm jack that's perfect for air shows and 6 watts of peak output power for maximum transmit range. Visit sporties.com PJ2 to learn more. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We're back with Jeb Burnside, who spent many years in Washington, D.C., working for NBAA and NATA, among other organizations. So, Jeb, as a veteran of the association world, what do you think is the most misunderstood part of how D.C. works when it comes to aviation? What does the average pilot not really get?
1: Well, I think um, it's not so much uh, uh, the the pilot, but I think uh, most observers uh, don't see Uh, what goes on behind the scenes. I'll give you an example. I was at NBAA, and and this was in the 80s, which, again, dates me a little bit. But I was the the, uh, uh, senior-slash-only government relations manager for the association back then. And old-timers will remember back around those days where the FAA was all excited about something called anti-misting kerosene. It was basically a formulation of jet fuel that it was hoped would help prevent catastrophic fires in the event of a a transport category aircraft crash. And they outfitted a Boeing 720, which is uh, a short range uh, 707, and installed it, installed uh, remote flying capabilities in it. And topped the tanks off. They had dummies in all the seats and, and it was instrumented and it was like a, a crash, literally a, a flight of crash test dummies. Um, and they flew this thing out. I'm maybe out of Edwards. I don't remember. Um, and, and flew it into some basically some, some sharpened I beams. The, the, the structures were designed to cut open the fuel tanks on this, on the 720. And, um, Make a long story short, it became an inferno. Um, and I was late after this, uh, everybody was kind of poking fun at some of this, but after this, I was having a conversation with a congressional staffer. And this, he, was a, he was a senior, senior aviation um, uh, staff person for the House Aviation Subcommittee at the time. And we were just talking about this and a few other things. And and it suddenly dawned on me that he had no idea what jet fuel actually was. <laughs> it it he, he thought it was maybe some rocket fuel concoction, maybe a step or two down from rocket fuel, or some hugely expensive high-octane gasoline of some kind. And I, I said, no, this is basically just kerosene. It's It's just something that... That burns well in a turbine engine. It's, it's, it's not that exotic. It's 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 simple. And that was educational for him. The punchline I'm trying to make, or the the, the the moral of the story, I guess, is a better way to put it. Um, these staffers on the Hill and even members of Congress and, and House of Representatives in the Senate don't understand. Some of these things, the way you and I understand them, or the way I, uh, even a private pilot would understand them. Um, another example: uh, in the wake of nine uh, eleven, there was a certain senator who I won't, whose name I won't uh, mention, who wanted to put airline style pre boarding security in place every place a general aviation airplane could depart. And it took days to educate his staff. I never spoke with the senator uh, about this, but spent days with the staff saying, look, what you're talking about is a Podunk Airport in South Georgia at 3 a.m. You're talking about um, a stand of pine trees next to a lake in Alaska. Um, You're talking about any number of other inaccessible, not cost-effective places to put this kind of of, uh, apparatus, this kind of infrastructure. Not only that, but what are the odds that a, a, a flight departing one of these locations is A, going to be a terrorist threat, B, going to do any damage, and C, going to happen in the first place? And it's that kind of education that uh, my colleagues uh, and, and former colleagues in, in, in NBAA and AOPA and NATA and Gamma and EAA and all of the alphabet soup that we we kind of point to and uh, with, with some uh, lack of understanding, it's that kind of education that these people are engaged in.
0: Yeah, great example of. The, the old dictum that usually it's an issue of ignorance, not malevolence. They're, they're sometimes out to get you, but more often than not, they just don't understand the world you're living in. So
1: I, I agree completely. And uh, all of the, with a couple of rare exceptions, and uh, all of the, the members and staff that I ever dealt with uh, were intelligent, conscientious. They were genuinely interested in coming up with good policy workable policy, policy that furthered the, the objectives, uh, but also uh, respected you know the, the, the status quo so that we wouldn't be having to make so many sea changes in the way we did things.
0: Now, if I have a concern about my local airport, which comes up fairly frequently, somebody wants to ban 100 low lead at my airport, or they want to build a condo tower right off the, the final approach, A lot of times people run right to Congress. But would I be correct in saying that's probably not the place to get started with that, that a a local airport issue probably needs to start with local politics?
1: Exactly. There's an old saying that all, uh, excuse me, that all politics is local. I think former Speaker Tip O'Neill coined that phrase. Um, Yes. The people who are making, who are agitating for banning Hunter Liland or or closing an airport and putting up condos. Uh, in its stead, um, have already done some of the work to ingratiate themselves with the local uh, political decision makers, whether that's a city council or a, a county board of supervisors or pick your pick your political panel, um, and um, the pilots, the, the aviators, the aircraft owners haven't done anything like that. And all of a sudden, they're blindsided by this. Uh, Best example I can give you of of how to do that at the local level is near me here in in, in Florida, the Venice, Florida airport. There's an organization called VASI, Venice Airport uh, um, Supporters, Inc., or something like that, um, that um, all woke up one morning and found out that their airport was threatened, not just as a place to build condos but in the instant case um from the noise that it generated and admittedly there are some expensive homes there's some expensive real estate near that airport which you know ties into the condo building uh uh, desires um but that airport has been there since world war ii it's it's uh Uh, one of these grandfathered things that uh, um, they they had accepted federal money within the last 20 years. You couldn't close the airport if you wanted to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But a couple of guys, and and the gentleman who's who's kind of the the, uh, example of this, uh, his name escapes me, uh, deserves a lot of credit, but they got together and started attending the city council meetings. They started attending the the county supervisors' board meetings, they started talking to these people outside of, of uh, these meetings. You know, come out to the airport. Let, let us show you what we have out here. Let us show you how, what an asset this is for this region, for this county, for this city. Um, I've done similar things like that with with uh, uh, TSA in the in, in years past. There was a a uh, it went into place. It's called the twelve five rule. Any, any aircraft that's being used commercially for for uh, uh, Transportation uh, is certainly of people that weighs more than 12,500 pounds has to be in, in, enrolled in a in a program, the uh, TSA-approved program, security program. And we took a couple of TSA staffers out to Westchester County Airport and walked them around the ramp. And here's an airplane. Here, Let's say it's a Hawker. Um, got an N number on it. No logo, no nothing. Um, there's another Learjet sitting over there. Now, one of them might have uh, an operator number stenciled on the side, Uh, but that doesn't really mean anything because we can't tell from a glance whether that airplane is being operated under Part 135 or if it's a deadhead um, going back home with an empty cabin or if it's uh, owned by an individual or a company uh, and normally flown in Part 91, non-commercial, or if it's operating today under 135 on a charter because they don't use the airplane that much. There's no way to tell. Again, just a simple demonstration, a simple uh, uh, conversation, a simple um, um, uh, conversation about how all of this stuff works. And, and educating these individuals typically means that you're going to get a better policy rather than pounding the table and, and uh, throwing things.
0: All right, Jeb, at the end of every one of these episodes, we like to close with a lightning round called Ready to Copy. So I'll throw out some questions on a variety of topics and you fire back with your quick answer. Are you ready to copy?
1: Ready to copy.
0: Accident reports, a common feature of many magazines, including yours. Do pilots spend too much time or not enough time reading these?
1: That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time. I used to read Aviation Safety Magazine well before um, I uh, even thought about trying to become its uh, editor-in-chief. I think they're extremely educational. I try to make them educational uh, in in my uh, work, but um, it can be overwhelming. Sometimes it's you maybe not want to leave a copy of the magazine laying around for your spouse to find <laughs> uh, because he or she might not want to get in one of these dangerous airplanes again. Um, but I think they're instructive. And uh, the, the most instructive part of it for me is how many pilots keep making the same mistakes. And that's, that's kind of the moral here when it comes to, should I read accident reports or not? Um, when
0: you do read them, think about what you would have done differently. Great advice. If nothing else, be humble. Do too many pilots cancel too many flights because of weather or not enough flights because of weather? Are they afraid of weather or are they naive about weather?
1: I don't think they're afraid of weather. I th- think they're naive about weather. I think they they have to learn to respect weather. Um, and it doesn't matter uh, what you fly. If it's a a CTLS. Um, if it's a Boeing 747, there is going to be weather that the airplane cannot handle. Um, Turbulence, uh, crosswinds, thunderstorms, whatever it is. um, And you have to respect the airplane's limitations. You have to respect what the weather can do to it.
0: What's your favorite quick tip for safer, smoother flying? Some little habit that pilots overlook? I have
1: a kind of a personal rule. I was just discussing with my house guest earlier today about, uh, what airplane is suitable for cross country, serious cross country work. And my answer to that is, is gotta have at least 180 horsepower. I spent enough time flogging 150, 160 horsepower airplanes over cross countries and on several occasions watching the traffic below me on the interstate mm-hmm. passing me. um, for weather avoidance, for load carrying capability, for overall comfort, and and certainly preventing fatigue, um, a faster airplane is the better airplane. A more powerful airplane that can out-climb some, some downdrafts that I've encountered over the years um, is, is worth its weight in gold. Uh, when you're sinking, when you're at full power and a 160-horse Skyhawk at gross weight and you're descending it, uh, and, and you're, you've pitched a VX, I'm sorry, VY, and uh, you're descending at three, 400 feet per minute, you will start to understand that maybe a higher powered, more expensive airplane is not a bad idea.
0: If you were king for a day, how would you fix the NOTAM system in America?
1: I think we should have some switches. Um, a lot of some switches that we can turn on and off that allow certain levels of NOTAMs to leak through or not leak through. Um, if I'm worried about a 150-foot unlit tower eight miles from my destination airport, I have a whole slew of other problems I need to worry <laughs> about. It, now, I'm not a helicopter operator, so that NOTAM may be of critical importance to me, especially if I'm like an EMS operator and I'm landing on a highway somewhere that I've never really surveyed. But if I'm in a Bonanza or even a Learjet or a Gulfstream, it doesn't really matter. I'm not too stressed about that tower. Uh, if I had a toggle I could use to say, do you want to know about obstructions um, uh, uh, lower than 400 feet AGL along your route? No, I don't want to know about those obstructions. And that's going to be a couple of reams of paper that we can all save each week by, by switching that off. Um I think a smarter um, way to present notums the notum the notum itself is kind of a miracle of evolution when you think about it. you've got it's all these codes in it that mean significant things, but of course it's all been customized to to accommodate the teletype machines of the of the 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, we don't have those kinds of physical um, bandwidth or, or um, space limitations uh, anymore. But we do have this glut of information that is so hard to sift through and find the nuggets that we really need. Um, your typical EFB these days, when you pull up at your destination airport, it will tell you, hey, you've got four NOTAMs at this airport. And you click on a, or I should say, tap a, a button and boom, there they all are. You pull up an approach, boom. There's another flag that says, "Hey, this approach has two notams." Uh, that's very useful, and and I will confess, I have I have missed some of these notams in my pre-flight planning. Um, so have other pilots, and I uh, know I'm not alone in that. So it, it's 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 a balancing act. The notam system is critically important. The information in those notams is critically important to some people some of the time. Uh, not all of us all of the time, and we need to be able to to set some filters and and filter out some of the uh, separate the wheat from the chaff, basically.
0: What's your most controversial aviation opinion? At least that you'll admit to.
1: <laughs> um, the most dangerous thing in general aviation is a private pilot with a number two Phillips screwdriver. <laughs> um, Appendix A of Part 43 allows them to do X, Y, and Z uh, as as a private pilot uh, on their own airplane. Um, sometimes that's not a good idea. Um, sometimes it is. I have made a few mistakes over the years in, in tinkering with my airplane. Um, uh, some of those were expensive mistakes.
0: In your opinion, what's the worst aviation regulation? <laughs>
1: Oh, wow. That's a good
0: question.
1: Um, It depends. For some of us, it's the flight review. Uh, Those of us who fly often enough and get training often enough um, know enough to, hey, while you're at it, while you're filling out my IPC, pencil me in for a BFR here also, please. Because you've done everything that the BFR basically requires going out and getting your IPC, uh, going out and getting your instrument proficiency check. Um, for others who, who, you know, haven't flown in six months, hey, let's let's go mix it up with a BFR with a fresh instructor, which is something I did recently. Um, fresh airplane, fresh instructor, fresh airport. Um, got night current again for the first time in months, years, I should say. Um, and uh, it was a great experience. It was it was not only the flying part of it, not only the, uh, uh, not only having learned a few things from an instructor with far fewer hours than me, but also um, just getting out there and seeing how other people do things, uh, how how some of these younger kids are motivated. Uh, it was overall a great experience.
0: You have eclectic taste in music, or at least it seems that way. What is the worst decade for music? The 80s. And the best? Yeah.
1: 60s slash 70s. 60s for sure.
0: You lived in Georgia sure. for a while. I used to live in Georgia as a kid. So I have to ask Where in uh, I lived in Atlanta for about 10 years growing up. Okay. Okay. So okay. I have to ask is it ever okay to drink Pepsi?
1: <laughs> yes. You will frequently find um, uh, establishments, uh, kind of like the old Saturday night Live skit. No Coke, Pepsi. <laughs> um, um, you, yes, it's okay. In a
0: pinch. Our last question is always the same, Jeb. You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Wow. Another great question. Um,
1: probably flying my trusty debonair and, uh, uh, my, my final flight is one that I hope I, I know about before I take off. I hope I know it's my final flight before I take off. And uh, it could involve um, flying out over the ocean, flying out over the Gulf. It could involve uh, uh, getting lunch at one of my favorite restaurants. Uh, mainly, it's going to involve some friends. And it's going to involve um, a familiar airport. Uh, one that I will go away with uh, many, many uh, uh, fond memories.
0: Jeb, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Pilots Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.